Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The Defence Secretary has a blunt assessment of what his own party has done to defence since 2010. I'm happy to say that we have hollowed out and underfunded. Will he do the same? But another minister says that's fundamentally not true. Is this a civil war at the top of government? Professor Michael Clark will help guide us through the politics of all this. Buying Russian missiles, skirmishes with Greece and now threatening to keep Sweden out of NATO. We ask if Turkey's a truly committed ally. Turkey is sort of in between and it never fully aligns to one group or another. It, it plays both sides. And on patrol in the Mediterranean, we'll hear about life on a US warship defending Europe's waters. Mediterranean is a really important region with the Straits of Gibraltar, the Strait up into the Black Sea and obviously we are at the north northern end of the Suez Canal. So three key lines of information around the world centre and go through the Mediterranean. This week, it all starts in tears. What does it mean to be a tier one military? And does it matter? This is because of an American general reportedly telling the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace that the British Army is no longer regarded by the US as tier one and is barely tier two. A tier one force is a force that is ready to fight tonight, now, with people, with ammunition and stocks and spares and medical support. The former head of UK Joint Forces Command General Sir Richard Barron seems to agree with the suggestion we don't have a tier one army. A tier two force is the one that will take months, in our case currently years, to get ready to fight, whilst the tier one forces are holding the line. What's really interesting is the Defence Secretary himself hasn't rejected the suggestion. Political orthodoxy would see him offer a robust defence of the state of the army he's in charge of. Instead, we've heard quite the reverse. We have all made strategic errors in our defence policies over the last two decades because we've had treasuries that have done short term. We have hollowed out as company. Governments after government have wanted more but not wanted to fund it. Now, we should note that he's laying the blame for hollowing out on Labour as well as Conservative governments, and we'll talk to Labour shortly. But the message from ministers seems to have switched. Usually, their reply to criticism of the state of the armed forces has been to trumpet an extra £16 billion put up by the then-Chancellor Rishi Sunak two years ago. But listen to what Armed Forces Minister James Heapy told MPs. Serial underinvestment in the army over decades has led to the point where the army is in urgent need of recapitalisation. The Chancellor and the Prime Minister get that and there's a budget coming. A budget is coming and that could have a lot to do with the change of messaging. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark has seen many a Defence Minister come and go over the years. Uh, Michael, have you ever heard any of them say anything quite this bluntly criticising their own party on defence before? Uh, no. Uh, this is relatively unique. We hear lots of ministers when they've stepped down criticising the uh, lack of uh, funding of, for defence or the lack of organisation in defence to make the most of the funding, which is also an element. But I've never heard two ministers say these sorts of things quite so bluntly. And that, I think, reflects the political situation that we're now in, in terms of our own domestic politics. Yeah, Mike, and just when we thought it couldn't get any more surreal, Johnny Mercer, who is part of the cabinet, 
cabinet as veterans minister told an audience at an event in London, it's fundamentally not true to say defence is hollowed out. He went on to say, if you look at our lethality and our global reach and what we can actually achieve now with our amazing equipment, it's better than it ever has been before. And he suggested ministers who'd lauded Rishi Sunak for promising billions more as chancellor were now being a little bit disingenuous to the Prime Minister. Uh, Mike, have we got a civil war in the Cabinet over the state of our armed forces? And if so, what does that mean for defence? Well, I think it means that defence is facing the reality. I mean, yes, we have got a civil war in the Cabinet. In a way, you know, you can you can think about the next election. The general view is that the Conservatives won't win it, that the Conservative government will go into opposition. Ben Wallace is being touted as a very good candidate for the NATO Secretary Generalship. Whether he wants it or not, I don't really know. I bet he does, but I just don't know. But he'd be a very, very good candidate, and he'd be very good if he did become NATO Sec Gen. James Heapy will have his own political career to get on with. But both both of them are very honest politicians. They both have real integrity and they've stuck with defence when both of them could have moved on to other things. I think that mm. says quite a lot. Johnny Mercer, again, is a very good man, but he's been in and out of government and he is a little bit more volatile in the views that he's taken. And mm. I think what you see here is politicians looking at their future careers over a longer period. All three of those people have been in the military, so they know it from the inside. But it's quite unique to have James Heapy and Ben Wallace, as it were, simply saying, we've, we've, it's a mess. And it's the Ukraine crisis which has actually nailed that and shown that we don't have until 2030 to get it right. We've got to get it right now. That's what they're saying. And if we go back to the seemingly leaked criticism from a US general, just as our defence review is being refreshed, there may be a pattern here. In 2018, a letter to the then Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson from his US counterpart raising concerns was leaked, just as the modernising defence programme refresh was being finished. A few months before the 2015 defence review, the then head of the US Army went on record with concerns about Britain's military capability. Would it be too cynical, Mike, to think someone somewhere might be inviting American concerns to be shared to put pressure on the Treasury. Oh, Kate, what a cynic you are. <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked uh, that you I should know. think that that sort of thing goes on. But uh, mm. believe me, it does. Yes, of course it does. And, you know, it, it is pointed out to our American counterparts who are very sympathetic one-to-one about the situation Britain is in. They say, look, if you say this or you say that, it would be quite helpful. Say it carefully. But of course, it would be helpful. But gosh, you're a cynic to think that. I know. Me cynical and honest politicians. You get it all on SITREP, don't you? Let me just play you one more bit from the Defence Secretary. This is from an interview rather than in the Commons. You know, as a Defence Secretary, I've always said I'm not going to uh, pretend things are perfect. And I would rather have a perfectly formed, uh, properly protected men and women of the armed forces of a size we can afford and an ambition we can afford uh, than pretend uh, we're somehow, uh, you know, reaching beyond ourselves. And so, Mike, is that the Defence Secretary hinting something along, along the lines of maybe we should accept we're not the military power we once were? Well, oh, oh, it's, it's a way of saying to his own party and his own leadership, you know, don't ask the military to do things that they can't do. And to be honest, the military have been saying this for a long time. They say, look, set us at the size you want that you're preferred, prepared to fund, but then don't pretend that we can do things that we can't. You know, we're, we're not objecting to being, as we're reduced in size and scope and all the rest of it, but we do object to being called a global force when we're clearly not. And I think that's what Ben Wallace was really reflecting there. Again, it's quite remarkable that he would say that he's really speaking to his own leadership and saying don't pretend that we're something that is beyond what you are prepared to fund and create.
Well, whatever the Chancellor decides on defence spending in his budget next month will be guaranteed at most only for the next couple of years. There has to be an election by January 2025. So, if Labour win, what will they do for defence? Well, let's talk now to the Shadow Armed Forces Minister, Luke Pollard. Let's just start with the reported comments by US General that the UK's army is now barely even Tier 2. Do you agree with that assessment? And do you think we need to have a Tier 1 army? It's a very worrying comment from this US general because it exposes the conversations that our allies are having about the strength of the UK's armed forces. I think there's no denying that over the last 10 years in particular, we've seen a real hollowing out of some of our capabilities, in particular with the British Army. There might have been renewal of some of our platforms uh, in for the Royal Navy, but when it comes to the Army, many of the uh, much of the equipment they're using is old, And we're at the point where we are transferring a large amount of military equipment to Ukraine, but we haven't backfilled that. Now, it's absolutely right that we're supporting our friends in Ukraine, and whether there's a Labour or a Conservative government, that will remain unchanged. But we need to make sure that the orders are being put in place to replenish that equipment. And my concern at the moment is even operating at pace we are still seeing a situation where our cupboards are increasingly bare when it comes to the ammunition and the weapon systems that in particular the British Army will rely on in the event of any future conflict. In that light, does that mean you are saying, yes, you agree, we are a barely a a tier two army and we do need to be a tier one army? There's no official statuses of what is a tier one or a tier two. So it largely is about how a nation wants to present itself. And the UK has always aspired to be a a leading country in terms of armed forces. Labour's position is that the United Kingdom should be the leading European nation in NATO. But I think there is genuine concern. This is not just from that US general. I think what his comments have prompted is a more open conversation about what actually is the deployable capabilities of UK armed forces, what are the pressures and real strains on our equipment programme, on the capability gaps that we are seeing in our armed forces against what our aspirations are, because so much of our armed forces are carrying too many gaps. I don't think now is the time to be reducing the headcount of our army, for instance, by 10,000. I think there are question marks over cutting the reserve by 10%. What is the right size of the army? Well, that would be, that needs to match where the uh, the threats are. Now, in opposition, we don't get access to the same amount of intelligence briefings as government ministers do. So I, I, I can't give you a precise figure of what that should be. That is the reason that on day one of a Labour government, we've said that we will start a new strategic defence review that will look at the threats that we are facing versus the capabilities that we have and that we need. What I certainly feel at the moment is that efforts to reduce the headcount of the army seem to be a backward step. You know, we're the only country, only developed Western nation that at the moment is looking at reducing the size of our army. And that probably should tell us something about how our allies are viewing the strategic context. I think cutting the army at this time is the mistake. Yeah, serious questions about ambition and having the right kind of resources for that ambition. What about money, though? Is Labour going to spend more on defence? Well, Labour's always spent what is necessary to keep our country safe. And as I said, in previous uh, governments, Labour's normally spent more than the preceding Conservative government. What I can't how do much, the... How much more will Labour spend on defence? Well, I can't say that at the moment because we don't know what the strategic environment will be at the time of the next general election. And um, I don't want to give a figure because I don't think that would be 
fair or honest about what the threats of we are facing. What we do need to do is make sure that a comprehensive defence review looks at what the issues are with our own national defence, with our allies, where we are ver versus Russian aggression, and also those emerging challenges of the future. So where are our friends in Asia, for instance? Now, Labour's had a different strategic view of some of these for quite some time. Uh, we don't believe in the same tilt to the Indo-Pacific that as the government is. We want to secure our own backyard in the Euro-Atlantic area before that tilt to the Indo-Pacific happens, for instance. So that does look potentially at where our forces are based. And therefore, what is the work that we need to do with our allies to make sure that we can support the our same objectives, but not necessarily deploy our own forces there? The AUKUS arrangement with Australia, for instance, is a very good example of how Britain, regardless of where our forces are based, needs to be working with our allies around the world to make sure the right equipment, the right friendly forces uh, are in place to deter any future aggression or any threats uh, to the established world order. There are some in your party who would say actually the lessons of the last few decades is we should aim to do less but better with our armed forces, scale back our ambition. Could that be an approach you take if you win the election? I'm uncertain whether that is the right answer, if I'm honest. I mean, certainly the UK for many years has uh, had the ambition of uh, being a full spectrum power. But if we're also honest, much of that full spectrum is provided by our American friends. And so the likelihood of the UK operating on, on our own in the future, in the immediate future, seems a slim one. So we need to make sure that our capabilities are matched with our allies' capabilities to make sure that as a total force, we are able to deploy what we need to do. Now, that is the same model that we are doing in terms of our support for Ukraine at the moment, UK providing certain equipment, other nations providing others. And we need to work more closely with our allies to make sure that the UK is participating at the highest level. Now, there's some really good examples. The Joint Expeditionary Force, the JEF, for instance, is a great example of how the UK is working with many of our allies on amphibious forces. Now, that doesn't mean every country has the same kit or the same capabilities. It means working together, providing options for military and political leaders, we can have deployable capabilities. Now, that, I think, is a... Well, it's a harder challenge. It doesn't fit in a neat soundbite, but it might be a more appropriate military answer for the strategic challenges we're facing, rather than uh, being able to say that we can spend money on every capability and buy every new bit of kit, because that's simply not possible with the budget that we're likely to inherit after the next general election. What would you say to the men and women of the forces would be the real difference for defence under Labour compared to the Conservatives if you do win the next election? Well, I know we've had a conversation about military equipment, but one of the big changes that I know will make a really big difference is sorting out the shoddy uh, state of defence housing, the uh, mouldy, um, leaky, uh, broken defence homes that we ask not only our service personnel, but their families to live in, I think is a mark of shame of the country. And so what Labour is saying, in addition to you know looking again at procurement, the overall shape and size of our armed forces, we have to renew that contract with those who serve. And one of those is about sorting out the poor quality defence housing, both single living and service family accommodation, that I don't think is good enough for those people who serve our, our country at the moment. Luke Pollard, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. 
When Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the biggest political aftershocks was that Sweden and Finland applied to join NATO, abandoning long histories of neutrality. Except nine months on, they're still not in the alliance because just one member, Turkey, is threatening to block one of the new applicants. It accuses Sweden of harbouring Kurdish terrorists and has now suspended approval talks because of controversial protests in Stockholm, in which a copy of the Quran was burned and an effigy of the Turkish president was hung upside down from a lamppost. Turkey seems to be the one dissenter and it's far from the first time it's looked like the black sheep of the NATO family. There are its links with Moscow, including buying a Russian air defence missile system, its long-running feud with NATO member Greece, which sometimes becomes military skirmishes, and claims of obstruction in alliance decision-making. So is Turkey truly a committed NATO ally? Would it really stand with any member were they attacked? I've been talking to Natasha Lindstedt, Professor of Government at Essex University, who's been explaining Turkey's public objection to Sweden joining NATO. From Turkey's standpoint, Sweden is supporting what Turkey views to be its enemy, that they have not extradited PKK sympathizers back to Turkey. Sweden has always taken a human rights approach. And this is something that Turkey has scoffed at. The Turkish uh, government doesn't like the fact that Sweden is telling them what to do on human rights. They just feel that their security concerns within NATO have not been addressed and, and they want to have an opportunity to put their foot down. And some people have suggested Turkey's playing hardball on Sweden, perhaps for domestic political reasons with an election looming, or maybe to leverage something from the US. Is there anything that can tell us whether the holdout is genuinely about Kurds and Turkish security? I mean, I think it's largely domestic, because when we think about dictatorships, and that's essentially what Turkey has become, and it's a very personalistic dictatorship, Erdogan uh, is eyeing the 2023 elections, his uh, support is been deteriorating over time. He doesn't have a very good approval rating. He's trying to rally people around him by appearing to be strong, by making Turkey appear to be an incredibly important independent player that is very influential, that it's not going to cower to the West. And it's staking its claim here, I think, to play to the domestic audience more than to what its actual concerns are. Of course, as I alluded to earlier, there are issues with the fact that it felt that NATO has ignored its real security concerns, particularly when you think about what happened in, at the height of the Syrian war, when there were real pressures on the Turks in that some uh, Syrian Kurdish groups were infringing on Turkish controlled areas. And they felt that the West really didn't think that this was much of a threat so that when something is threatening to Turkey, NATO doesn't seem to come through for them. But I think this ultimately is more about Turkey uh, asserting itself and the international stage and that's to play to the domestic audience in Turkey. And when you look at Turkey on a map, it's wedged between Europe and the Middle East. It's on the edge of each in many ways. Turkey's leaders ultimately look first at what's in Turkey's best interests. But do those interests really align with NATO? Can they? They don't always align. And I think that's one of the problems because Turkey is sort of in between and, and geopolitically speaking, it's in this really interesting position. But it's always had this policy where it, it never fully aligns to one group or another. It, it plays both sides. We see that in the way it's been dealing with the war in Ukraine, that it continues to trade with Ukraine, 
um, has sold armed drones to Ukraine, supports Ukraine's sovereignty, but also has stayed away from applying sanctions onto Russia. It's had huge military deals of, uh, you know, worth around 2.5 billion with Russia to to buy their missiles. Uh, and it continues to be one of Russia, uh, Russia, I should say, is one of Turkey's biggest trading partners. There's all kinds of economic linkages there. And so Turkey often interacts with other countries. It's very transactional. It's not based on huge cultural ties sometimes. Uh, so Turkey has been trying to be very clever by being as independent as possible uh, and never tying itself to one side. And if we look at that relationship with Russia, how close are they and why, or is it simply transactional? I see this as very transactional and and, and really not much more than that. Uh, Russian trade with Turkey is, as I mentioned, it's, it's like Turkey's third biggest trading partner. And it relies on Russian tourists going to Turkey. Uh, there's all kinds of other economic trade deals that they have. And so for Turkey, it needs Russia from strictly an economic standpoint. Does Turkey need to keep ties with Russia or is it a strategic choice? I believe that Erdogan sees Russia in terms of, you know, economically incredibly important to its economy. And given that much of Erdogan's approval rating is affected by the dip in the economy and how important it is that the economy improves, I think Erdogan sees this as vital to his own um, survival. And then you have the conflicts between Greece and Turkey, Cyprus, conflicting claims over waters and gas reserves in the Mediterranean. Can they really be seen as true allies? They, they'll never be seen as true allies, uh, particularly because the issue with, with Cyprus has never been uh, sorted out. The, they have basically a cold peace in some ways that they've established with one another, uh, but, but they're not really on the same team. They always go for their own individual interests. So on balance, then, Professor Lindstedt, do you think Turkey is committed to NATO or is it just hedging its bets? I think it's more hedging, but it's it's committed to remaining in NATO. Uh, and when it's benefited it, it has always traditionally supported actually countries joining NATO on the eastern flank. Um, and in this particular instance, I think it's Turkey under Erdogan sees it as opportunistic to to block Sweden uh, from joining. I said, I think it, they said recently that they may uh, allow Finland, um, but it's in it in so far as that it, it benefits Turkey to be a member of the organization, but I don't know how far they're willing to go to defend it. Professor Natasha Lindstedt, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Mike Clark, let's just flip that final question round. How committed is NATO to Turkey? Well, there are different views. There's a view led by France, actually, amongst other some members, that, you know, what have you got to do to be thrown out of this alliance, that actually Turkey is a terrible NATO member and constantly cocks a snook at NATO in quite important ways. The other view, really led by Britain or in, ex exemplified by Britain's view, is, look, um, Erdogan won't be there forever. Turkey is a really important country to NATO. It straddles Europe and the Middle East and Central Asia. It's too important to isolate it, so we've just got to live with this. And I think there's two, there are two issues which will are the, are the test. One is, as Professor Lindstrat said, is the elections in either May or June. So Erdogan has got to win an election or fix an election to win it. And after that, his behaviour may change. If he remains in power, his attitude to Sweden may change after the elections. The other thing is this S-300, the, the air defence system they bought from Russia. They've got the system, but it's not operationalised yet.
If it ever were operationalized, I think that would cross a red line for NATO because that would put NATO's F-35 aircraft as well, on the wrong side of Turkish air defense. And it's been made very clear to Turkey that as long as you have the S-300, you will never, never get F-35s because mm. in sinking the F-35 to your defense system, if we ever did do that, we were foolish enough to do that, we'd be giving F-35 material straight to Russia. So we're certainly not going to do that. Nor will you get the upgraded F-16, which you want. So if the Turks ever operationalized their S-300 system, I think NATO would then think very, very differently about any cooperation with Turkey. Those are the two tests, the election and the S-300, I think. Well, it's worth pointing out that Turkey does play its part in NATO, including alongside Greece, even if that can be a little uneasy sometimes. Two naval officers, one from Greece and one from Turkey, are working side by side on the bridge of the US destroyer James E. Williams. It's currently the flagship for NATO's maritime task group in the Mediterranean, which is commanded by Rear Admiral Scott Shiretta. I would say, you know, when you have, uh, you know, 30 nations comprising an alliance, you know, there are some cultural differences and, and, and those diplomatic and cultural differences have to be respected. They bring diversity to the group. Quite frankly, I think we capitalize on that diversity and I think it makes us stronger as an alliance and we respect each other. It gives me you know, many different options and, and, and many different ways I can complete the mission uh, that I'm assigned. Well, BFBS reporter Simon Newton has just spent a week on board the USS James E. Williams. Hi, Simon. What was it like? Hi, Kate. It was, well, it's definitely built for war fighting, not uh, human comfort. I guess compared to a carrier, it just feels very small inside and, and very American. They have their Taco Tuesdays and their Burger Wednesdays on the mess debt, for instance. As you know, the military, the US military does try and take home with them wherever they go. There's 330 men and women living and working on board. Down in the depths, they've got 80 bed dorms, very confined, you know, little privacy really for this crew. Many of them are very young. That's what really struck me, just out of high school. Mm. Um, and they're deployed from their base in, in Virginia for six months. And now because it's the flagship, there is a US Admiral, as you heard, on board, plus these various exchange officers, as you mentioned, Turkish, Greek. There's also Romanian officers on board and also a Royal Navy anti-submarine warfare specialist, a chap by the name of Lieutenant Commander Jake Dre. He's been in the Navy for 30 37 years. This is actually his fifth time as an exchange officer on board US ships. And I asked him why the Med remains so important to NATO. Mediterranean is a really important region with the Straits of Gibraltar, narrow choke point, susceptible to terrorist attack if ever there was one. So we police that element. We've also got the Strait up into the Black Sea. And obviously we are at the northern end of the Suez Canal. So three key lines of information around the world centre and go through the Mediterranean. There's a lot of traffic here. We monitor illegal activity and also non-NATO activity in the Mediterranean. And what about the USS James E. Williams, Simon? She's a pretty formidable ship, mm. isn't she? Well, the US Navy has 70 of these Arleigh Burke-class destroyers. Uh, and those, you know, those familiar shots we see of Tomahawk cruise missiles being fired off into the night from US ships, like the strikes on Syria we saw, well, the, these are the ships that carry those. And the, the amount of firepower this ship had is really quite incredible. There's 96 of these launcher tubes on the fore and aft decks that they can use to fire not just cruise missiles, but also torpedoes, anti-ship missiles, um, anti-aircraft missiles, you name it. They've also got a five-inch gun on the front, two 27mm guns on each side, which they've nicknamed Thelma and Louise, by the way. <laughs> um, and there's also, a, there's also a phalanx gun on the stern that can hit small boats incoming missiles. That can fire 50 rounds a second. 
Uh, and one of the most incredible things was this radar system they've got called Spy, which gives the ship this 360 degree vision. It allows it to track up to 800 targets out to more than 200 miles. They can also hunt for submarines using their towed sonar. And they've also got two Seahawk helicopters on board, plus seven pilots. So they're not short of, of kit, really. Uh, it's a sort of Swiss army knife of warships, really, this thing. And it can really do pretty much anything. And Ukraine, has that changed the way this task group is operating? Well, I asked that question a few times, really. I got very diplomatic answers, but I asked, the Admiral said there hadn't been any great rise in tempo, but of course it is the backdrop to what they're doing. Ukraine isn't that far away, um, of course, and NATO is on a heightened footing. Uh, and I also spoke to the ship's captain, Commander Robert Island. I asked him if the war has affected how they're operating in the Med. Well, NATO has a long uh, tradition here in the Mediterranean and in the North Atlantic, obviously. But I would say uh, NATO's always had an interest in Mediterranean uh, regional security and stability. I would say even now, with uh, things going on in Ukraine, uh, that adds a different dynamic to this area. There's, a, there's an active war in this uh, theater of operations. And so that makes the mission that we have here all that more important. And just one interesting footnote, Kate, that the James E. Williams is, is in this flagship role until the summer when it's actually going to hand over to a Royal Navy destroyer. So the, U the UK is going to be taking on this lead role from June this year. Yeah, uh, Mike, it's interesting. We've talked a lot about the effect of Ukraine on the work of British land and air forces. How much impact has it had on the work of the Royal Navy then? Oh, on some, for sure. I mean, in terms of transit and heightened, I mean, as with the Americans there, sort of heightened alert status and I mean, moving kit and equipment around as well. There's been a, a quite a lot of that. It's not all done by air. You know, I often think it's a bit like about muscles in the human body. Um, you know, when you when you hurt yourself, your shoulder or your knee or your ankle, you, you realise pretty quickly going upstairs or picking something up or whatever, that you use all your muscles all of the time in different combinations. And it's a bit like that with ground air and maritime forces. You actually use all of them all of the time in different combinations, depending on the, the particular challenge. Professor Michael Clark, Simon Newton, thank you so much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.